Ghost Stories UK, Season 6, Episode 12, calling this one Ghost Cats. Well, hello anybody listening. Just a quick warning that this podcast will be a ramble. Uh, Not for all tastes. It's a random delve into some instances that have been reported into ghost animals, mainly cats, and principally pets that have passed and been seen again. So, not a podcast to be enjoyed by all. There are so many good podcasts and streaming services and ways to entertain oneself today that I can't imagine too many people wanting to listen to a niche obscure podcasts about ghost cats. However, I would like to dedicate this podcast to fellow cat lover and friend of the podcast, Megan Finley Horowitz. So thank you, Megan, for your support and love of cats. For those having lost pets in the past, it can be a very upsetting process. It happened to me again recently when I think back on the life of our dog, now past, a black lab that couldn't walk anymore and was exhausted by life. The veterinary surgeon came to our house and put him to sleep on the kitchen steps where he usually slept. When we still think of him every day, nine months on, as we do the death of our little black pug seven years ago. I suppose that it's not an uncommon wish to see them again, and also for the passing of time that had been spent with them. For example, I'll never run ten kilometres in under an hour again. Add to this the ancient Greek Plato's philosophy, the theory of forms, that the physical world is not as real or true as it seems, and our senses are so easily tricked, and we can't really rely on them, and we have the perfect conditions for the imagination to create instances where we can see our pets again. Such an experience happened to me again just the other day when I was driving from my home, and a couple of hundred yards from our drive there's a bridge over a stream and there was a fallen branch that gave the illusion of a black cat sitting by the side of the road the first time I passed it. I stopped as I thought it was one of the cats that lived with us that had strayed too far from home. And each time I passed that branch, it seems just like a sitting black cat. The point being that I'm sure that most people can give some recent experience of some vision that seemed to be an illusion of something else. Mold M.C. Folks and Marchioness Townsend were well known for their book True Ghost Stories that was published in 1936. The stories were accepted in good faith back then and came from a variety of sources. Marchioness Townsend lived in a famous haunted house, Raynham Hall in Norfolk, which features in the first story in the book, and it's known for the famous ghost photograph of the Brown Lady. Descending the Staircase, which has been published in various books. In the introduction to their book, they admit that some of the stories are more likely to have been embellished and dramatised, but it seems that both women were spiritualists and believed that the living could interact with the dead. I think that all the stories published in their book could be explained away. For example, the following gentle story that was introduced by Maud Folks when she considers the likelihood of pets returning after death. She also talks about the famous case of the uh, Balakan house and its ghost dogs. And please listen to the recent podcast on the Balakan case. In the plot spoiler, there were no ghost dogs. 
Maud tells a story of Villish Mona Veen and Fairy Flax. These were two prize-winning cats that were owned by Miss Thessel Cochrane. Thessel Cochrane's name peppers the cat show records from the early part of the 20th century. Miss Cochrane lived a comfortable, privileged life where she could concentrate on her interests, which was maintaining a nursing home for animals in the Chelsea area of London. Her animal nursing home was at 29 White Hoods Grove, Chelsea. The original house is long gone, replaced by huge apartment buildings, where a two-bedroom flat now costs at least a million pounds. Miss Cochrane ran her animal nursing home in conjunction with Alfred Sewell, who was the veterinary surgeon to the royal family who lived just around the corner at Buckingham Palace. The clientele that used the animal nursing home were posh, and they included King Edward uh, VII and George V. George V died in 1936, the year the book was published, so it's unknown if the royal connection with Miss Cochrane continued. One suspects that it would, as Cochrane would have been one of those eccentric personalities that were so focused on their tasks and would have been impossible to ignore. The animal nursing home was described as a charming place. The wards were airy, clean and flower-filled like those of a human hospital. There were also accommodation for private cases such as the king's dogs when they came for treatment. In the garden there was an ancient mulberry tree and vines that climbed around the windows at the back of the house. In the front garden lilac trees hid the exterior of the house from those that passed by. Thessel Cochrane and her sister Barbara were both great cat lovers who cared for the animals. Thessel told of how she first acquired Villish Mona Veen as a tiny, a tiny snowflake of a kitten that did not seem as if she would develop into a championship winning cat, although she was to win numerous awards in cups during her short life. Thessel said that wherever Mona appeared at shows, her pen was surrounded by admirers, but she was a self-possessed cat who in private was uncomplicated and affectionate and who lived for six years until she was suddenly taken ill. Thessel told of how she cared for Mona, sitting up with her for three nights in a room set aside for her recovery. But Mona died at midnight on the third day of her illness. However, Thessel didn't have much time to grieve as she had to start her rounds the next day at 6am. And as she explained, she mechanically cleared away, leaving Mona lying peacefully in her basket. She said that she sat down near the open window looking out to the garden. The garden at that time of day was fast asleep, and while she thought about Mona's passing. It was at this point she heard the familiar purr of Mona next to her. She said that she was unable to mistake her throaty cadences after the short room fell silent again. Thessel insists this actually happened, and it was not a question of imagination. She thought that it healed the uh, little of the pain which came as the result of loving something overmuch. Thussell said that once that it was known that Mona had died, the Natural History uh, Museum at South Kensington asked and were allowed to have Mona stuffed and exhibited at the museum as a specimen of the perfect tailless Manx cat. Thessel said that after losing Mona, she was determined not to have another cat, but on passing in the animal department at Selfridges, she could not resist a blue-eyed kitten that she called Fairy Flax. 
Ferry Flats was to enjoy great success at cat shows, winning ten first prizes, until she succumbed to the gastric influenza, which was an epidemic that was devastating the cat world as a by-product of the Spanish flu epidemic of 1919. Thessel was devastated by the loss of Fairy Flax. It was the third night after her loss that she said that Fairy Flax returned. She was sure that it was not a morbid hallucination, and the fact that she was so sure that the cat had returned enabled Thessel to face the possible ridicule or criticism of her experience with complete indifference. Thessel said that as she lay awake with a nightlight burning on a nearby table, there was a sudden gleam of white and something sprang on the bed and nestled down into the usual place. It was fairy flax. For that moment she was real, and then she was gone and never returned. I think most people would agree that Miss Thessel Cochrane was having wishful hallucinations regarding the reappearance of the death of her cats. She gave other stories to more folks that made it clear her belief in spiritualism. Another story that uh, she told concerned her friendship with Algernon Blackwood, who was famous for his stories on the supernatural and was a member of the occult group The Golden Dawn. Blackwood gave her a small Egyptian figure that was from a mummy's case. It was a figure of Pasht, the Egyptian cat goddess. There are different names for the Egyptian cat goddess, such as Bastid or Bast, so I'm not sure if it's down to translation problems. But there was an Egyptian cat goddess that was cat-headed and attended by cats. Cats seem to have been worshipped in ancient Egypt. Some experts say that the status of a cat was roughly equivalent to that of a cow in modern India. And if a family cat died, it would be embalmed and buried into a cat cemetery with great mourning and the owner would shave off the eyebrows as a token of mourning. And I've read elsewhere that in ancient Egypt the harming of a cat was punishable by death. Anyhow, Thessel put the figure of Pasht into a cabinet in the animal hospital at Chelsea, but it brought nothing but bad luck on the animal patients who started dying off. A friend of Thessel put her in touch with the Egyptian section of the British Museum, who suggested that although Pasht was an animal deity, she should not be put anywhere near living animals, as the goddess would be responsible for their death. This is what Thessel believed, and so she buried the figure somewhere in Chelsea. And she said, call it a coincidence if you like, but the deaths of our patients ceased. Maybe I should mention that cats are also important in North, uh, Norse mythology, and feature in Hindu mythology, and probably in other belief systems. Cats have a special place in folk belief in the UK and elsewhere. This has changed over time and in different places. It's been regarded as a holy or diabolical beast, a bringer of good fortune or as an omen of evil. In almost every country where they are known, cats are believed to have mystical powers for good or evil. The 1889 report by the Society of Psychical Research, the SPR, on a census of hallucinations as examples of apparitions of animals. The SPR were adept at dressing up explanations in complicated jargon, but the general understanding is that these were hallucinations which were reported by people. The SPR were trying to account for these by the influence of factors such as age, sex, health, hereditary, and other factors that may have caused the hallucination, such as grief, anxiety, nervous overstrain, uh, and so on. 
The following cases of animal ghosts have been taken from the report which puts the visions down to hallucinations. It's worth pointing out here that the SPR investigated almost any phenomena when they first formed in 1882. For the next 30 years, this is where most of the records of cats are found. After this time, hauntings and apparitions seemed to fall out of favour and the SPR concentrated on such aspects as telepathy, automatic writing and so on. It, they concentrated on phenomena which they could more easily give the impression of scientific study. For the SPR, haunted houses, apparitions and ghosts were generally out of fashion from around 1930 and the chances of a cat, you know, ghost cat being reported after this time were rather poor. This is not cat related but it's some of interest. It was a case given by a Mrs S and this came from March the 29th 1892. She said that she dreamt of a large black butterfly hovering over her husband as he lay in bed. She woke and saw it by the aid of a nightlight, the butterfly of her dream fluttering over him. She called the servant and together they tried to kill it. She struck at it with her handkerchief and apparently succeeded but they were unable to find the body of the insect. The doors and windows were all closed and it could not have escaped. It was very large and could not have remained invisible. The woman and the servant also who saw the butterfly discussed their experience and came to the conclusion that it must have been a hallucination. The SPR researchers discovered that according to superstition widely spread in Brazil, the black butterfly, the black butterfly was supposed to be a sign of death However, the husband managed to escape this fate in this instance. The SPR research indicated that many similar hallucinations never attain a completely realistic form, often being transparent in whole or part, or shadowy or misty. But according to their definitions, a motionless apparition was described as an illusion. I had the tandem book of ghosts when I was aged about 13, which listed all the supposed harbingers of death for certain families. The SPR studied these special symbols, signs or forewarnings that were connected with death in some families and if hallucination occurred to members of these families they would likely take the form which family tradition had suggested. The SPR census of hallucinations reported accounts of families where several members have experienced hallucinations of white animals, cats, dogs or rabbits which are supposed or regarded as a family symbol of death, similar to the Brazilian idea of the black butterfly. I'm no expert on witchcraft, but cats have a long history as familiars to magical practitioners, and during the time of witch hunts from the late medieval ages, uh, mate, sorry, the late Middle Ages, until the 18th century, the black cat was viewed with great suspicion. The William Shakespeare play Macbeth was set in the 11th century and the witches then sir, possessed cats, although the domestic cat was not introduced into England until the 16th century. At that time the wise women, or as some people called them witches, were often accused of being agents of the devil. They caused pestilence in every possible physical or mental ailment, and able to control destructive natural phenomena, in particular storm raising, which was apparently caused by throwing a cat into the sea. In Britain the black cat was generally considered lucky and in some parts the white cat was considered unlucky and in other countries the opposite is true. 
However, it was always considered a good sign if a black cat comes into a house or on board a ship, especially if uninvited. It must never be chased away. There are variants of this belief. In some places it's lucky to own a black cat, but unlucky to meet one whilst out. In my county of Sussex and some other counties in the UK, a kitten born just after Michaelmas, when the blackberry season has ended, is called a blackberry cat, and is expected to be mischievous. This probably connected to the legend of the devil spawning blackberries at this time of year. If, cat, if a cat leaves a home where there's illness within and cannot be coaxed back, the sick person will die. He will also die if he dreams of cats or sees two cats fighting. I assume there's no statistical evidence to back up these assertions, but there are many folk stories involving cats. For example, if a cat jumps over a coffin waiting for burial, it's a bad omen for the dead man's soul, unless the cat can be killed at once. Cornish miners would not work down a mine if a cat had been seen down there until it was killed. Seamen were happy to have a black cat on board ship, as long as it, as long as it had no white hairs on it. On the Yorkshire coast, a fisherman's wife always wanted a black cat in the house, as this meant her husband would return from sea. Black cats had such value that they were regularly stolen in the area. There were more macabre uses of a cat or a cat's body to cure various ills, which I won't go into here. The point of these examples given is to give us some idea of the rich folklore concerning cats. Well, the SPR's Mr Salter published an account of a ghost cat in the Journal of May 1926, when they refer to the incident as an evidential hallucination of a cat. The unknown author, let us call her witness X, was known to be a good reliable witness. I don't know if X was male or female, although I think female. I think all the witnesses came from the same family and included three generations. X was described as a sceptic, although open-minded and unbiased. In this case, a white cat, which did not exist in the flesh, was seen many times over a period of 13 years. On several occasions, the hallucination was experienced by two people at the same time, one of whom called the attention to it after it had been plainly perceived by the other. The cat was on two, one or two occasions apparently felt as well as seen, and according to the testimony of every person that saw the white kitten, it was shortly followed either by the death of a person related or the beginning of a fatal illness. Mr Salter said this may have just been a coincidence. Mr. Salter said that the curious feature of this case was that years before the first hallucination of the white kitten, such a creature was owned by one of the witnesses. This was considered important. The cat was female and mysteriously disappeared, with a consequent rather poignant effect on the emotions of that witness. They were deeply upset over the disappearance of the white kitten. If it could be supposed that in some unknown fashion there could come into her mind premonitions of the death of relatives, um, it might be that some obscure mechanism with a subconscious would call up the image of the cat that had disappeared and probably died. But one of the witnesses was of a younger generation, had no recollection of the historical cat, white kitten, and consequently had no feelings whatever about it. 
Mr. Salter thought that this might be some sort of telepathic communication which could explain away this problem. Assuming that X was telepathically able to pass information on to others, this they may have suspected a family member who was aged or unwell and unlikely to live for much longer. The idea of death made them think of the white kitten that they had lost years previously. X may have passed on telepathically the thought of the white kitten to other family members. And once this process had happened, it may pass into family folklore, and so the tradition is born that a white kitten apparition is seen before a family death. Salter went on to suggest that by auto-suggestion the ghost cat apparition was reinforced by the illusion of actually feeling the cat. To reinforce this idea, Salter said that on several occasions the hallucination of a cat was seen in the exact location where it was seen by X who passed this vision over by telepathy to other family members. Mr. Salter ended his report by suggesting that his um, telepathy theory of the ghost cat may have been nonsense, or bunk as he called it, but reading the full report it seemed that he had a belief in his theory. The next case illustrates the rather casual approach to the care of animals back in the late Victorian period, a time period when unwanted puppies or kittens were put in a weighted sack and thrown into a river as it was not worth the effort of feeding them. Consider this report from a Mrs. Gordon Jones who wrote in during 1892 that she had the strongest aversion to cats and would never have one in the house until she was obliged to do so on the account of mice. The one that she allowed to come into the house was an ordinary grey and black striped cat which she said that she took no interest in. She very seldom looked at it and it was never allowed to go upstairs. One day she was told that the cat had gone mad and a servant asked if it should be drowned. Mrs Jones said that she did not bother to look at the animal but agreed to its drowning and was later told that it was drowned by a servant in a copper. She said that as the cat was not a pet, that had never been a companion, its death had made no impression on her. It was drowned in the morning. The same evening she was sitting alone in the dining room. She was not thinking of the cat or any possible apparition. She was reading, but she felt impelled to look up to the door, and which seemed to open, and there stood the animal that had been drowned in the morning, the same cat, but apparently much thinner and dripping with water only the expression on the face had changed. The eyes were quite human and haunted her afterwards, they looked so sad and pathetic. Mrs Jones felt so sure of what she saw at that moment, she never doubted that it was the living cat that had escaped from drowning. She rang the bell, and when the servant came she said, There's the cat, take it out. It seemed to her that the servant could only, must be able to see it also. It was so clear and distinct to her eyes. But the servant looked frightened and said, Oh, ma'am, I saw the cat after William had drowned it, and he buried it in the garden. Mrs. Jones then explained how the cat began to fade, and she saw nothing more of it. To the SPR, this was a classic hallucination that was characterised as being of a certain type, being a hallucination that was not a reproduction of anything actually seen, but of a scene subconsciously imagined. There were a number of other cat hallucinations, sometimes appearing before the death of a family member. Often a strange cat that cannot be found afterwards, 
although these counts don't seem to give much attention to the ability of cats to be able to get into places where they're not supposed to be, and then being able to hide away so well that they seem to have disappeared. I'd imagine that anyone who had a cat would have experienced their ability to disappear and then just appear as if by magic. A typical type of story would be the following tale of a strange cat having seemed to have disappeared when searched for. Mr. F. C. S. Schiller told the story that he heard in October 1890 from a Mrs. Ernie Griffenberg and various conversations which he had with her and others on the subject. He afterwards obtained signatures to it. Neither of those involved had ever had hallucination experiences in the past. In the words of Mrs. Ernie Griffenberg, in the beginning of the summer of 1884, we were sitting at dinner at home as usual in the middle of the day. In the midst of the conversation, I noticed my mother suddenly looking down at something beneath the table. I inquired whether she'd dropped something and received the answer, no, but I wondered how that cat had got into the room. Looking underneath the table, I was surprised to see a large white Angora cat beside my mother's chair. We both got up and I opened the door to let the cat out. She marched around the table, went noiselessly out of the door, and when about halfway down the passage, she turned around to face us. For a short time, she regularly stared at us with her green eyes, and then she dissolved away like mist under our eyes. Even apart from the mode of her disappearance, we felt convinced that the cat could not have been real, as we neither had one of our own or knew of one that lived nearby, and the cat made a particularly unpleasant impression upon them. This impression was greatly enhanced what happened next in the following year, in 1885, when they were staying in Leipzig with her married sister. They'd come home uh, one afternoon after a walk, when opening the door of the flat they were met in the hall by the same white cat. It proceeded down the passage in front of them and looked at them with the same melancholy gaze. When it got to the door of the cellar, which was locked, it again dissolved into nothing. On this occasion it was first seen by my mother, and we were both impressed by the uncanny and gruesome nature of its appearance. The Griffinbird said the cat did not seem to be real. There wasn't any definitive end to the story, just the mystery of the disappearing cat. The next story is from 1883, it was published in the 1885 Journal of the SPR, and a story told by Mr. E. W. Phipps. This was about his dog, and in his own words. On the first Monday, the bank holiday in August 1883, I was staying with my family in Ilfracombe, Devon. At about 10pm I went to bed, I fell asleep, and was awakened about half past ten by my wife coming into the room, and I told her that I just had a dream in which I saw my dog, called Fox, lying wounded and dying at the bottom of a wall. The spot and surroundings I did not know but the wall was of the old Gloucestershire dry wall type. I once inferred that he must have fallen off the wall, as he was fond of climbing. On the following Thursday came a letter from one of my servants, back at home at Barton N. Grange, that was at Nailsworth, saying that Fox had not been seen for two days. On the same day I wrote to say that every inquiry must be made about the matter. The servant replied on Saturday with a letter 
which he received on the Sunday, saying the dog had been worried by two bulldogs on the previous Monday evening. About a fortnight afterwards, I returned home and made my inquiries most carefully, and found that about five o'clock on the Monday afternoon, a lady had seen two bulldogs worrying my dog and cruelly tearing at him. A woman near this place stated that she saw the dog about 9pm dying under a wall, which he pointed out to me, which I had not seen before. It was near her cottage. The next morning the dog wasn't there, but I heard from somebody that the owner of the dogs, on his return on the bank holiday, hearing what had happened and fearing the consequences, at about 10 to 10.30pm had secretly buried it, at a time thus agreeing with my dream. Investigations were continued by Mr. Phipps, and although nothing was proved for certain, it was suspected that a general barter living nearby, who had two bulldogs, fitted the uh, description of the alleged perpetrator. The SPR tried very hard to deconstruct each case to try to make sense of uh, apparitions, analysing each aspect of each case. Was it the place or the person that caused the phenomena? They did not seem to come to any conclusions as many cases contradicted each other. Frederick Myers of the SPR in particular seemed to tie himself up in knots trying to make sense of the reported cases, as he was the person uh, working on the cases of the visible apparitions. There were happier outcomes. In the Journal of July 1890, it tells the case by told by Mrs Beauchamp. She was at home in bed when she had the feeling something was wrong with the dog. It came into her head that he had died, that the dog had died. She looked for it. Uh, she looked at a watch to see the time, and she thought, "I must go up and see him." But it was so cold, and it seemed so silly that she fell asleep. She said that it must have been some little time after someone knocking at the door. It was her daughter, and she said, "Oh, Mama, Meg is dying." We flew upstairs, and he was lying on his side, like dead. His legs were stretched straight out like dead thing. My husband, Colonel Beauchamp, picked him up and for a while we couldn't see what was wrong, for he was not dead. Then we found he'd nearly strangled himself with the strap of his coat, somehow getting around his neck. He soon revived and recovered. We got it off and he could breathe freely again. I shall always in future go and see if I have a distinct feeling about anything or anyone. I could swear I heard his patter so distinctly around the room, and so did my husband while he was choking. In answer to inquiries made some months later, Mrs. Beau Beau Beauchamp writes, Colonel Beauchamp paid so little attention to the circumstances at the time that he could not undertake to write an independent account. I cannot re recollect any other experiences of any hallucinations of such a distinct sort. It made a great impression on me, there was no other dog in the house that night, and I could not possibly have heard Meg from the room where he was. It was on another floor, and at the other end of a large rambling house, and both doors were closed. My bedroom door was closed so that no animal could have come into the room and left before my search. Mrs Beauchamp informed them that she was exceptionally fond of dogs, that her own particular dogs had been like friends to her, and she had had this one for eight years. It was not possible to ascertain whether the dog's distress had began at the time of Mrs. Beauchamp's experience. Well, the Journal of the SPR for May 1926 had the following case of the apparition of a cat. This was a case in which the house would appear to have been haunted by a cat. 
Three witnesses saw the cat independently and had no knowledge that it was an apparition at the time or that the house had a reputation that it was supposed to be haunted by a cat. The names and addresses of the people concerned were known to the SPR, but pseudonyms were used, as was the usual practice for the SPR. The case was sent to the society, originally by a Mr. Truworthy, who was a member of the society, uh, to whom well, the Mr. and Mrs. Simpson, what was a pseudonym, were personally known, and Mr. Truworthy had stayed himself at the house in question. So, on June the 16th, 1925, Mr. Truworthy wrote to the SPR enclosing papers about the house haunted by a cat, which he thought may deserve a place among the SPR records. Truworthy said that he had made inquiries himself and enclosed notes to cover any points on which the Simpsons did not give full information, and he enclosed signed witness statements. Truworthy said that he had stayed over with the Simpsons at the house, although he did not see the cat, he was satisfied that the Simpsons were credible witnesses. He also said that Mr. and Mrs. Simpson were both clairvoyant in the past. She used the crystal and had the gift of a travelling clairvoyance. I take this to mean that she was able to travel to other places in her imagination, describing events in these distant places. Trevorthy said that the Simpsons gave up their powers years ago owing to unfortunate experiences, which were not revealed. Mr. Simpson's original statement concerned the cat was written on the 20th of February 1925. He said that neither his wife or him had ever heard anyone say the house was supposed to be haunted. The house was built at the end of the medieval period, around 1500, and until 15 years ago, that would have been 1910, it was an inn, and before that a farmhouse. Simpson said that the cat had been seen several times by... Um, him and his wife and also a friend Miss Allen who came to stay Miss Allen was also said to be um, psychic it has never been seen by any two at the same time and we all agreed that it's a long haired cat practically black Miss Allen had seen it bo in both the house and the garden but uh, Simpson and his wife had only seen it in the house each of us having seen it in different places my wife and I have never seen it walking towards us only by our sides or across, but never coming to meet us. When I have seen it, it's always ended, uh, always had its tail up. Anyway, by the time I decided that I'm looking at what we call the, the bogey cat, not one of our own two cats, which are smaller and lighter in colour. I never used to believe in ghosts and always said when they were mentioned, show me something that will stand up a shotgun and I will believe I've seen a ghost. The first time I saw Bogey, I was in the dining room, and I thought I saw a cat trying to get into our dresser cupboard. Our cats will get into it if the doors are left open. It was some nine feet away from me. I walked over to it and bent down to push the cat away. Then I noticed that I could see right through it. The cat was going away, so I thought I'd follow it, and as I did, through the dining room door, uh, across a little lobby towards the scullery into the pantry. In the middle of the pantry floor it vanished. I immediately went into the kitchen and saw our two cats asleep on the chair. The doors were all open. I should like to say that at a few feet away it looked like any common cat, 
but when I got close to it I knew it would be useless to try to touch it as I could see through it. Both my wife and I saw it several times before mentioning it to each other. We, met, we never mentioned the cat to Miss Allen until she saw it. and She said, I see a cat around your place which vanishes. It cannot belong to you. The Simpsons had come to the house on the 1st of March 1924. The cat was first seen on the 10th of March and then it was seen regularly by Mr. and Mrs. Simpson. It was seen both during the day and at night, and Miss Allen, as said, had seen the cat in the garden in daylight. The Simpsons had a bull terrier dog and two cats, but nothing in their behaviour indicated that they had seen a ghost cat. There was a servant at the house, but they had not questioned her about the ghost cat. Mr. Simpson's idea was that other people, when in the house, may have seen Bogey, but not, knew, but not known that it was a ghost, because at a distance it looked like an ordinary cat. But when you are quite close to it, you can see through it. There was an instance when the postman came to the door after dark. Simpson saw the cat run out when the door was opened. When Simpson said to the postman, Bother, I've let the cat out. The postman replied that no cat came out. Mr Simpson then went back inside and found both his cats asleep this indicating that he had seen the ghost cat, but not the postman. The Simpsons felt that the cat could also have been sensed when present. Miss Allen said that she had felt it under her feet, looked down and not seen anything. Mr Simpson said he had felt the cat under his feet when walking up the stairs, this indicating that the ghost cat was not in mirage, as he felt the touch of a cat, or at least imagined that he had touched it. The Simpsons were trying to sell the house, uh, because it did not suit them, not on account of the ghost cat, but they had not talked to villagers about the apparition for the fear that the house may be considered to be haunted and therefore become difficult to sell. They said the ghost cat was not like any other cat they'd ever owned. There's no story to connect it with the house. Their predecessors and the occupation of the house never mentioned it to them. So as far as they know, no one knows anything about it except themselves and the friends who have they told. It's never been seen in the bedrooms or the drawing room. When seen, it generally walks towards the scullery or pantry. There is no object apparent in its manifestation, and it seems quite happy. The next case was printed in the SPR journal, uh, number 15, from 1911 to 1912. This one tells the tale of Smokey, or if you prefer, the collective hallucination of a cat that was recognised and was formerly lived at the place of its sighting. The case information was sent to the SPR on March the 4th, 1912. The principal witnesses were personally known to associates of the SPR. The names and addresses of all those concerned were given. But since allusions were made uh, to matters of private family history, pseudonyms were used. It will be observed that the case was recorded within a week of its occurrence. So the writer, we'll call this one Miss X also, said that her sister had a favourite cat called Smokey, a purebred blue Persian of a peculiar shade and being very small. And there was no other cat in the village in the least like her. During the spring of 1909, Smokey became ill and died about the middle of June. The gardener buried her and planted a dahlia over her grave. Shortly before Smokey died, she'd been worried by a dog and had her ribs broken, so she walked quite lame. 
she walked to one side and it was this injury that was the final cause of her death. In the words of Miss X, on Tuesday July the 6th 1909 my sister and I were at breakfast and I was reading a letter aloud to her. I was sitting with my back to the window which was to my sister's left. Suddenly I saw her looking absolutely scared and gazing out the window. I said, what is the matter? She said, there's Smokey walking across the grass. We both rushed to the window and saw Smokey looking very ill, her coat rough and staring, walking lamely across the grass in front of the window, three or four, three or four yards from us. My sister called her, and as she took no notice, she ran out after her, calling. I remained at the window and saw the cat turn down a path leading towards the end of the garden. My sister ran after her, calling to her, but to her surprise Smokey did not turn or take any notice. Then she lost sight of her amongst the shrubs. About ten minutes afterwards my sister and a friend living with us saw Smokey again going through a hedge at the front of the window. My sister again went out, but could not find her. She was next seen about half an hour afterwards by the servant in the kitchen patch passage. She ran to get some milk and followed her with it. But the cat walked away, and from that moment she disappeared completely. Uh, the family made every inquiry of the neighbours, but no one had seen her or any cat like her. Of course, we thought there had been some mistake about her death. We thought our friend, the gardener, our friend, the gardener, and the boy that had all seen her dead. The gardener was so indignant at the supposition that he had buried, not buried the cat, that he went to the grave, took up the plant, and dug up the body of Smokey. We were quite mystified at the occurrence, which was witnessed by four people. The cat was seen on three occasions. When last seen, the cat was walking towards the house next door, where she had lived all winter and spring, as the sister had been house-sitting there. But when my sister went over there, the people at the house had seen nothing of her. When my sister first ran out after her, the cat ran away in front of her, moving fast, but, walk, but running on one side as she did before she died. So, the cat was witnessed by four people who had known and seen the cat. The SPR made the point that the difficulty in such cases is to exclude the possibility that what had been seen was a real cat, although the witnesses had all been aware of this and stated um, and made inquiries amongst the neighbours, but with a wholly negative result. And they'd all known Smokey, they knew what she looked like, and they were convinced that it was Smokey that they'd seen. The peculiar appearance of the cat and the nature of the surroundings in which it was seen make it improbable that in a small country place a real animal could have escaped all previous subsequent observation. The SPR asked for more information and it was explained that the garden was fairly large, about half an acre, and surrounded by a wall. The two nearest houses were owned by relations and there was no other cat similar to Smokey in the neighbourhood. When the cat was spotted through the large glass window facing on the veranda, it was just a few feet away on the grass lawn. X stood watching at the window when the sister chased after the cat. The cat was walking very slowly at first, then ran down the path. It did not seem to jump onto the brick wall, but seemed to disappear as it got there, although the tree on the other side of the wall shaded that part of the garden, obscuring the view. Miss X said that she had never experienced anything supernormal during the course of her life, nor had the other witnesses, with the exception of her sister, who had twice seen curious visions or apparitions, 
although she was described as practical and down-to-earth personality. Their father was described as Scots Galloway and their mother was English, as it seemed at this time to the SPR that the ancestry had some bearing on your ability to assess, access the paranormal or perhaps be accepted as a trusted witness. Miss X said that she wondered whether her sister's sight of the cat could have been conveyed to the other witnesses telepathically, so they saw what was present in her vision. The SPR wrote back asking for details of the sister's visions that had been uh, both taken both taken place at the relative's house and where she'd seen the apparitions of human figures. The sister was described, was described as a strong, forceful personality, a trained nurse and a calm personality. Miss X wanted to make a point regarding her sister, this being that she was not sentimental about animals and although very sorry for the loss of Smokey, she was rather relieved when the suffering was ended as she knew the cat could not recover from her injuries. She had certainly not fretted over her death and she uh, said this in case anyone reading the account would imagine that she was in some sort of hysterical grief over the cat's death. The SPR were interested in the observation that the sister was a strong personality who had an influence over others. <coughs> They argued that it was noted that the first person to see the apparition of the cat uh, lent colour to the sister's suggestions that it may have been a case of collective hallucination resulting from suggestion or verbal suggestion. However, rather than telepathic, the three subsequent witnesses all knew when they saw the cat that it had been seen by the sister. The SPR said that the explanation does not necessarily apply to each of the three appearances of the cat. The hypothesis that what was seen was a real cat mistaken for Smokey is most plausible in regard to the servant and least plausible in regard to Miss X, where inversely the evidence is for collective hallucination. The SPR said that it was difficult to think that two people having good normal eyesight could be completely mistaken as to the identity of an animal, presenting several marked peculiarities which they were observing uh, which were perfectly familiar and they had on this occasion an excellent opportunity of observing the animal in daylight. On the other hand it may well be that the sister having experienced as on a previous occasion a vivid subjective hallucination was able to convey it to Miss X. However the SPR thought that the case gains much in value from the fact that those concerned were thoroughly competent observers. The next case comes from 2007. Now, I heard this on a radio program and it concerned a BBC presenter who was known as Whispering Bob Harris. He was famous for presenting a program called The Old Grey Whistle Test, which uh, played uh, rock music. Anyhow, Bob Harris was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2007. And at the same time, his goddaughter, Olivia, was born weighing only one pound, one ounce. And he said that nobody gave her a hope in hell of surviving. Harris said just as these two crises happened, he began to hear meowing under the floorboards of his home. And a tiny terrified kitten was found there. As Bob was recovering from radiotherapy, the kitten became his project. 
and it took months of putting food down and encouraging it to come out from its hiding place. Finally, Bob said that when they did get to stroke the kitten, it was like a magical charge, worth all the waiting, and the kitten became part of the family. Seven months later, his tiny granddaughter came through an operation, and with, within days of her getting the all clear, and Bob also getting the all clear, the kitten was run over by a car outside Bob's house. Bob tried to make sense and stress the positives. He said it was almost as if he was, uh, the kitten was sent as some kind of angel to see us through a difficult time. I thought that I'd include this story, as I found it quite sad and touching, and give some indication on the healing nature of animals and nature. Some people do think that angels can take the form of animals, although I'm not a believer, in that there are some people that believe this, and there are, I think there are podcasts on this subjects. Well, as we're talking about ghost cats, I thought I'd better include in the subject uh, big cats that have been seen. The cases concerning, uh, as I say, so far concentrated in this podcast have been about domestic cats. But I thought I'd add a selection about big cats in the UK because some people think they may have a paranormal cause. There are podcasts about big British cats which investigate the cases such as the Beast of Bodmin Moor, thought to be a Black Panther, which made the British press from time to time. I seem to remember the skull of a cat being found in Cornwall in 1995, but on subsequent investigation it was discovered to be a hoax a skull coming from an ancient skin imported from Asia many years previously in a leopard skin rug. The government of the day had investigated the possibility of big cats after the media scare of the Beast of Bodmin, but they found there was no verifiable evidence uh, for or against big cats existing. There was a strange incident during the Bodmin episode, this being when the, the so-called Beast of Exmoor was supposed to be seen by a British army team who were hunting the beast. It was tracked and supposed to be trapped in a barn, but when troops moved in on the creature it was not seen or captured, which were the basis of theories that the beast was from a parallel world which could slip into different dimensions to avoid capture. The alternative theory being that the British army wasn't very experienced in capturing pumas, and pumas were very good at avoiding capture. I read the book by Marcus Matthews, Big Cats Loose in Britain, and in this he gives his views on the existence of big cats in the UK. He argues that the Romans, after they invaded Britain, brought all sorts of animals from their empire to use in circuses, including big cats, and also probably to intimidate the native British. When the Romans left, it was possible that the population of cats remained, and some hybridisation may have taken place. Matthews claims that the population of big cats may have survived to the present day. He talks of the legends of big black dogs, which are so common in the UK folklore, and he thought that these may be big cats being mistaken for dogs. The big dog connection being popularised by Diana Francis in her book Cat Country in 1983, and throughout history in the UK I'd imagine that every county has its black dog story. I mentioned such a story a couple of podcasts back when investigating the, the Satanist Donald Omond. 
stories about big cats existing in the wild in the UK have existed as long as the UK media. William Cobbett's book, Rural Rides, tell of how, tells how he, as a boy, saw a cat as large as a spaniel dog in mid-18th century Surrey. Over the years, there have been various stories of local farmers shooting unidentif unidentified animals. Consider this example from 1883 at Bullingdon Wood near Ragbury in Lincolnshire. Back in 1883, this was wild land. There were no traps or keepers patrolling. A farmer was out shooting with his dogs when he flushed a creature out which he shot. It was sent to a taxidermist where it was identified as a large wild cat four feet long from the tip of the nose to the tip of the tail. Wild cats having shorter tails than their domestic cousins. The last wild cats in England were thought to have lived in Exmoor. Sorry, I think this is Somerset. And this was during the Middle Ages. So the Bullingdon wood creature was a surprise. There were records of wild cats killing men in the UK, dying from the wounds that they had received, which must have become infected. Scottish wild cats are described as the size of a middling-sized fox and remarkably fierce and destructive to game and lambs. They could weigh up to 14 kilograms, exceptionally the size of four feet in length. Wild cats prowled Scottish farmsteads, killing tomcats and mating with the female domestic cats. I watched the BBC Spring Watch programme yesterday and they said that wild cats were considered extinct now in the UK as there had been so much interbreeding with domestic cats. However, wild cats that have been bred in captivity for years, these are still purebred and there's just been a breeding programme which there is a project to reintroduce them into the Cairngorms. So it'll be interesting to see how that programme develops. The intention being to introduce pure Scottish wildcats back into the natural habitat. I think I may have seen a big cat about 10 years ago just outside the village of Hurstbeer Point in West Sussex. But on listening to an excellent podcast, this is Big Cat Conversations, episode 74, I'm of a mind that it may have been a farm mutant cat. You will have to listen to the West Sussex expert Charlie Bones explain this. I saw the cat over the length of a field on a sunny day, where it's difficult to judge sizes in such circumstances. However, the black cat that I saw did seem much larger than any domestic cat that I'd seen in the past. The idea that big cats may be very large feral cats was popularised by Dr. Morris Burton in the 1960s, after the big cat scare in Surrey, and the New Forest. Nigel Brearley in the 1980s found hairs on a big cat kill in Exmoor and these were analysed and found to be those of a domestic cat, although he thought that feral cats may have scavenged from a kill by a large creature such as a puma that had been released into the wild. Feral cats can weigh up to 15 kilograms which comes quite close to the weight of a small female puma which would be about 20 kilograms. This would make it possible that feral cats could breed with ex-exotic wild cats that had been released by their owners. It is known that Scottish wild cats breed with domestic cats. I checked the Guinness Book of Records for the largest recorded house cat in the UK. This was Stewie, a grey tabby Maine coon, who was 48 and a half inches long, so a fraction over four feet, and the tallest was 19 inches. And the heaviest in the UK was 21 kilograms. So house cats can reach impressive sizes. Matthews in his 
book Big Cats also talks of the 1976 Dangerous Wild Animals Act regarding regulations keeping large cats. Apparently it wasn't an offence to release exotic species such as big cats into the wild until the 1981 Wildlife and Countryside Act, the same act that made it an offence for a child to pick a primrose in a forest but allowed huge building schemes to go ahead on special nature sites. So a flawed law at best. The hypothesis about the Bodmin beast and similar sightings suggests that the releases or escapes of big cats from private collections or zoos. It seems that Mary Chipperfield, the British circus owner, released her favourite pumas, including a breeding pair, into the wild following the closure of her zoo in Plymouth in 1978. She did this rather than send them elsewhere. There have been other claims that other big cats have been released into the wild into the UK after the 1976 Act. Some of the stories regarding big cats being kept in private houses are remarkable. I remember the case of a lion escaping a house that was being kept at the house to deter burglars. Well, that was the excuse that was given. Matthews thinks that there may be native lynxes living in the UK. They had been given as pets since Tudor times, uh, or had been kept as pets as Tudor times, when Henry VII was given a present of an American lynx. The lynx was once an indigenous species, probably up to the early Middle Ages, and the Scottish population may have survived into the 18th century. However, others were rejecting this, saying that the wildcat population balked, as there had been no lynx competition in the UK since recorded history. Diana Francis thought that the big cats seen in the UK were Kellis cats, which were thought to be a hybrid of the domestic cat and the Scottish wildcat named after the Kellis village in Scotland. The Kellis cat was thought to be a methodical, uh, mythological wild cat until one was shot and identified in 1983. And this can be seen in Elgin Museum. I'll put a photograph of it on the Facebook site. In recent decades, Kellis cats have been increasingly seen since they are now known to exist. It seems that once a creature has been recorded as being in existence, witnesses are more willing to come forward after seeing such creatures. Going back to the supernatural theories on big cats being mistaken for spectral big dogs, there are other ideas on the origins of big cats. One surprisingly popular theory is that black cats are extraterrestrial beings. The idea being that this was popularised after big cat sightings coincided with UFO sightings. I'll just mention this idea as I don't think it worth going into too deeply. Similar theories would include ideas of a parallel world of time slips, such as ideas suggested after the case of the Beast of Exmoor that had already been mentioned. Hugh Williams sent me a message regarding Big Cats. He's an expert on the folklore of the Midlands of England. I did enjoy reading the book that he wrote called The Mystery of Mercia, in which he tells of an encounter which he later speculated was a hallucination of a big cat that had been projected from his imagination while at Odin's Cave in the Peak District. Although there seemed to be much dis uh, to discuss regarding big cats, it's such a huge subject and is very, very well covered by others. Well, I suppose I'd better stop whittling on about ghost cats as the podcast is approaching the hour mark. I will post some photos on the Strange Story UK Facebook site. I'd also like to mention the at least... The latest tourist attraction in New Haven in Sussex, the Cat Wall, which I am under 
stands who is providing very popular and people have travelled some miles to visit it. So the cat wall at Newhaven. So it remains to thank Damselfly for providing the background music, you for listening, and a special thanks once again to friend of the podcast, Megan Finley-Horowitz. Thank you and goodbye.